All right, we are in week five of our series, and um, the, the goal is to slow down a little bit today. We really did a blitzkrieg through chapter two last week, uh, covered too much, uh, went too long. Uh, there was so much in chapter two, but, but I didn't think there was enough really to warrant settling down there for a few weeks. We are trying to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so we're slowing down a little bit today and um, in week five in our series. And I want to recap just briefly what we've seen from, from chapter one and chapter two as we now jump into chapter three. Um, we began in chapter one by seeing this section that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven because God, excuse me, man has suppressed the knowledge of God, the revelation of God. God's wrath as we saw, is defined as, as God giving man over to his sinful desires and um, resulting in the perverting and distorting of creation. Or I should say in, in response to man perverting and distorting the creation. This is creation turned upside down. This is a manifestation of God's wrath. It's a manifestation of, of human sinfulness as well. Um, Chapter 1 focused really on the depravity of the Gentiles, and last week we saw Paul turns his attention to religious moralism, uh, from the Gentiles to the Jews there in chapter 2. And we saw him discuss the final judgment and what that's going to look like. It's going to be based upon the covenant of works. It will be by works, according to the law. The law that has been written on the heart of Gentiles and the law that has been revealed and, of course, the law of Moses. God will show no partiality. It is the doer of the law who will be justified before God, not the hearer only. So, you know, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you're religious or pagan, God looks at the heart and the standard of his righteousness, the standard of his Judgment. And so, here in chapter 3, Paul now, he's going to turn to answer objections about how God will judge Israel. He's explained the final judgment. He's begun to indict them for their sin. So now he's going to deal with a bunch of objections. Well, what does this mean? Why did God reveal the law to Israel? How does this play into his purposes through them? And he's going to conclude by indicting the whole world under sin. That's where he's driving at. That's his main point. And as we will look at next week, this is where, after indicting the whole world under sin, he's going to turn to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's the only answer to the problem of God's wrath against human sin. So, our outline today, and as I mentioned, we're, we're not going to make it all, all the way through chapter 3 today, um, as I mentioned a few moments ago. We, we need to end on time, and um, there's just so much here. Uh, we're going to take verses 1-8 through eight and then 9-20 through 20 to look at today. In the first section, verse 1-8, uh, through eight, Paul deals with objections about God's judgment against Israel, and then in verses 9-20... through 20, he nails down the total depravity of all humanity, which sets the stage for justification by faith alone. 
So, uh, let's begin and look at these first eight verses. Romans 3, 1 through 8. We're just going to read the text and work through it. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds for His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good, evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Um, So think about the context here. Paul has just argued that God will judge by the law. That law demands perfection. And the outward covenantal privileges, namely circumcision, notwithstanding. He's also argued that the true circumcision which the physical um, ritual pointed to was by the heart, excuse me, of the heart by the Spirit. It was his last verse there in chapter 2, 229. So the natural question now is, what benefit or advantage is it to be a Jew? And that's what he deals, turns to, to answer this objection. If knowledge of the law, as he's argued, and circumcision doesn't save us from God's wrath, why does it even matter? What's the point? Um, And of course, that's the question, the objection in verse 1. In verse 2, he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. I do want to point out that he says, to begin with, Uh, Because this is something he's going to return to. He returns to it um, most specifically in 321, which we'll look at next week. Um, But this is a question that he returns to again and again and again and again, all the way to the very end of the book of Romans. Perhaps most specifically, he answers this question in chapter 11. So, what advantage is it to have circumcision and the law and the revelation of God. Well, for starters, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Right now, to begin with, there's a myriad of benefits and advantages to being entrusted with the truth. You've got the Old Testament Scripture. You've got the revelation of God. You've got the true worship of God. These bring an assortment of advantages. That's his argument. But really, he, he leaves off that kind of elaborating that point, and he kind of 
just jumps to a series of objections that he anticipates. Right? So again, he, he returns to that later. But for now, he just says, okay, to begin with, they're entrusted with the oracles of God. But another objection, what if some were unfaithful? They were entrusted with the oracles of God, but they were unfaithful. They didn't believe those oracles of God. Those oracles of God did not lead to their salvation. Does their faithlessness, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Um, this is an important question in the context of the book as a whole. Does Israel's unfaithfulness, rejecting their Messiah, seeking to attain justification by works, uh, which he details in the first part of Romans 11, does this nullify God's promises to them? Or does it mean, in another way of saying it, does their unbelief mean that the promises of God, specifically to Abraham, failed? It's a natural question because think about the Scriptures, what they... We often don't think about this in great detail, but um, throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in the New Um, The scriptures are very clear that only a small remnant of Israel ever believed. Even at the height of of the Solomon kingdom. And, and, um, you know, the scriptures speak only of a remnant, a small portion of Israel who actually truly believed. A faithful remnant. Elijah, think of him. He's like, I'm the only one left. God tells them, well, no, there are more, but don't you know there's only a remnant that will be saved? And of course, writing here in first century Rome, at the time before the Roman Empire turned against the church, the Jews were the primary, primary, primary source of persecution against the church. So this is an important question. God made these promises to the Jews. Were they empty promises? Were they powerless promises? Was God unfaithful? That's what he's answering. And again, he he gives that objection, and then he provides an answer, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you were judged. Uh, just because the Jews didn't believe does not mean that God is unfaithful to His word, unfaithful to His promises, or unfaithful to His covenant. Remember, in the greater context of where Paul goes in Romans 4, particularly, he points out that the promise given to Abraham is that all the nations would be blessed. So, and he's saying, in in chapter 11, he goes on to say, you know, you are the fulfillment of that promise. Jews and Gentiles alike. But here again, he's saying it does not mean that God is unfaithful to his promise. And he he quotes Psalm 51 here to prove this, where David acknowledges that, that God has every right to condemn him. He, uh, David acknowledges his own sin. He, 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 
admits, even though all of these covenantal privileges, I am a sinner, I've broken your law, and you are right when you judge. And the point, everyone is personally accountable for their own sin. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't that you were in the people of God so you were good. Everyone was personally accountable for their own sin. And so in this respect, keep the big picture in mind where, where, he's, where he's going to here. He, his point is he's seeking to prove that all men are under sin and that Israel is in need of a righteousness that does not come from the law. That's where he's driving at, and he's seeking to dispel the notion that, oh, well, I'm in the covenant, I've got the promises, I've got circumcision, I've got the law, so I'm good. God's just going to overlook my own sin because of these external things. His point is, no, you, you need something else. All men need something else. David knew this. You need to see this as well. And then this leads to his very complicated, um, confusing conclusion here. Another objection, elaborating on this point. And he says, but if our unrighteousness, so our unbelief, serves to show the righteousness of God, that he's justified when he judges, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He's saying, I'm speaking you know, in, from a human perspective here. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Uh, anyone want to take a shot at this? <laughs> this, is, this is an open floor here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's confusing. Um, it's hard to follow the train of thought uh, because of the rhetorical nature of the questions that he asks. Um, but, but what is he saying? What's going on here? That's what's being slanderously said of him, that his teaching means we should do more wrong so that God can show more grace, basically. Or is he using their argument against them to say, well, if that's true, then my quote lie, um, well, if that's true still, um, why are you condemning me as a sinner? According to your method of saying that unrighteousness serves the righteousness of God, why am I still being condemned? Yeah, both. So if, if, yeah, if, um, say that again. <laughs> so, so he's, he's using their objection, um, turning it back on them and saying, well, if that's true, then why are you condemning me as a sinner? Yeah, if it's true, why does God still punish us? And if it's true, um, why am I even condemned as a sinner? You're right, two ways of saying kind of the same question. 
why not we continue just to do evil that good may come? If this is what um, promotes the gospel or promotes the righteousness of God. Yeah, and, and you're right because he doesn't elaborate on his um, uh, on the point. He just says their condemnation is just. He 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 takes it as a point that's obvious that you don't go into more debt, you know, um, uh, to make more money. Um, you don't do more evil so that good may come. He he just takes it as obvious their condemnation is just. Uh, this is a ridiculous argument. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah, so um, if, let me try to break it down then. Uh, that's good. Um, the objection. If Israel's unbelief serves to show the righteousness of God, that's the objection. I.e., if God entrusted his oracles to them, which revealed his righteousness, but those oracles law, circumcision, don't bring life. And if his covenant, if his oracles entrusted to them, actually resulted in much unbelief, and if true circumcision only comes internally by the sovereign work of the Spirit on the human heart, is God fair? Is he being fair? To judge them. God, you're, you're revealing your righteousness to Israel, but in doing that, it resulted in much unbelief. You're revealing your righteousness through Israel, but it's only circumcision of the heart that saves, and that's your work, not theirs or ours. That doesn't seem fair. answer well how's God going to judge the world then on that basis God couldn't judge anybody because he's given his law to everyone on the heart remember that was his point in chapter 1 and chapter 2 yes Jew, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God they had the the explicit manifestation of the law of God, but his point already is, look, at the end of the day, everybody knows the law of God. It's on their heart. And on that basis, God couldn't judge anyone because he takes it for granted, something he goes back to in Romans 9 specifically, God is sovereign in salvation. So, we're going to continue to work through this, but um, then adds the other objection here. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? If Jewish unbelief 
reveals God's righteousness and glory, then why are they condemned? And should they sin even more so that His righteousness may abound even more? And the, Paul, this isn't hypothetical. Paul's dealing with this objection because he says, some people are slanderously charging with this, us with this. But it's obvious that this attitude deserves judgment. Absolutely. Acts 15, most preeminently, the Jerusalem Council, Council, where they debated whether they should require the Gentiles to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses. And the Jews were like, yes, this is everything. And of course, the apostles were like, no. <laughs> this tied a burden on them that nobody could bear. Um, so, absolutely. Um, there was always a path for Gentiles to become Jews and worship the true God. And with the advent of the gospel, um, the Jewish perspective was that still needs to happen. Um, but the New Testament and the teaching of the apostles is clear that you know the true Jew is Jesus Christ. You become Jewish through a union with Him, not through the externals of the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law has passed away. Well, not the moral aspect, as Paul is arguing. He's already talked about it being on the, on the heart. Um, but the, um, the, the worship and the requirements and the rituals and the covenant itself um, has been replaced. Israel broke the covenant. I'm making a new covenant with you. So, yeah, absolutely. This is, this is a, a real... Um, uh, accusation and slanderous report that had been um, um, made against Paul and the apostles. And their essential, you know, doing evil, I mean, they would, there's so much that would fall under that category. So why not do evil that good may come? Um, Not observing the law and and the ceremonies and the rituals to a Jewish mind would be doing evil. So, there's a lot that goes into this. But think about this in contemporary significance. Um, leaving off the Jew-Gentile relation back then, um, leaving it off a bit. Um, he's dealing with legalism, but what's the flip side of legalism? Cody? Antinomianism. Antinomianism without law um, is a form of legalism, and legalism is a form of antinomianism. Um, You're two sides of the very same coin. You are either taking it upon yourself to fulfill God's law on your own and to earn your standing before God, which always requires you to, to, um, to soften the blow, to lower the standard. You're creating your own law, ultimately, because you can't, you can't, you can't perfectly obey the law of God. You, you've got to, you've got to make it attainable. You lower the bar so you can attain it. That's legalism. But antinomianism, same thing. You don't try to, 
to work your way up to that standard, you just drop the standard altogether. It doesn't matter. Which is a law unto yourself as well. It's the same thing. So, in this sense, legalistic, we're God's covenant people. We've got the covenant promises. Not you dirty Gentiles. And through our circumcision and our rituals of worship, um, we are going to obtain that righteousness. But antinomianism, flip side of this, well, we're God's covenant people, so it really doesn't matter what we do. God's going to go overlook everything. Paul's argument, he, he's, he's trying to take away everything that they might take refuge in so as to point them to Jesus Christ. You can't trust in your obedience and you can't trust in your covenant status. You can't trust in your, abs, uh, your outward conformity to, um, to circumcision or um, uh, the rituals of the Mosaic law. The problem is deeper. The solution is greater. That's ultimately his point in all of this. So, um, you know, there are, these are themes that he returns to throughout the entire epistle. And he expounds upon them. So we're not going to answer everything right now. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but the main point is simply is that God is going to judge Israel just like everybody else. His promises and covenant to them are faithful, and as Paul will show, they do lead to the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is what they aimed at all along anyway. They are faithful even if most did not believe. And this does not excuse legalism or antinomianism, nor does it annul man's responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. That's, that's the ultimate point. And I know that's confusing. I uh, went round and round and round on how to communicate all this this morning and work through this. It's hard. But um, the, the best that, that I can put it, uh, I believe that, that's his main point in this section. Um, questions? Comments? It, keeping the big picture in mind is, is critical because it's easy to get sidetracked on the rhetorical questions. But the big picture really comes clear in the next section because this point is to nail down human sin. We are just like Adam. Um, we are experts at shifting the blame. It's the woman you gave me. God, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. We are experts at shifting the blame. We're experts at um, finding refuge in our own righteousness or our own abilities or our own moral goodness or our own integrity in, in, in so many variety of different ways, whether legalistic or antinomian. We are experts at saying, it's not my fault. Not only is it not the, uh, the woman that you gave me, God, but you know what? You're sovereign anyway. 
you're sovereign in salvation, and so, I, you know, trust me, I've heard this a lot in, in counseling. Um, particular sins that are entrapping. Well, if the Lord would just free me from it. The Lord hasn't freed me from it. He's got to do it, so I'm stuck. That's a cop-out. It's evil. Yes, it's true that God must save. Yes, it's true that even to, to put sin to death, we, we, we rely upon the power of the Spirit. But that does not mean that we're not responsible. It does not mean that God is not just. And that's what Paul's nailing down with this. You are guilty. You are responsible. God will judge you, and none of these other excuses are going to matter. It's hard. It's hard to hear. In fact, the whole section, all the way from uh, Romans 1, 17, uh, uh, 18, all the way to 3.20 is, is dark. That's why um, if I ever preach through Romans, which I do uh, obviously hope to one day, um, the first, I don't know, three or four months <laughs> are going to be really, really hard because you're just, boom. He's the prosecutor. He's the prosecutor. He's bringing all the evidence. And, it, and it, it hurts when that finger is pointed right at you. And there's, there's no hope. Because he doesn't get to the hope until 321. But that's his point. You got no excuses. You got no escape. You got no hope on your own. And Karen? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the law, in, in rightly seen, is, is, is saving us from ourselves as well. Yeah. Um, but in our human depravity, <laughs> in our longing to shift the blame and to cover ourselves with fig leaves um, in our natural state, that's not our natural inclination. It takes the Spirit of God to, um, as this section closes with, um, he says, we don't know the law, we uphold the law. Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inward being, even though I fail every day. I delight in it. Uh, it's the work of the Spirit of God. It's good. Um, so let's move to the conclusion, because we've got ten minute, less than 10 minutes, and I've got to finish on time. Um, I'm going to read this real quick. This is, this, is, this is the summary. This is everything that he's been working towards. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are... Sh- Swift to shed blood, 
and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Um, this is the doctrine of human depravity. And as he's begun to strip away all those excuses, those fig leaves that we seek to cover ourselves with, he brings the hammer on this final point, and, and it's this culmination of human uh, depravity and guilt before God. In light of chapter 1, the Gentiles, the book of nature, in light of chapter 2, the Jews in the book of the law, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Outside of a righteousness revealed apart from the law, which is where he turns in verse 21, Jews are no better off than the pagan unbelieving Gentiles. It was a shocking statement. Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. What? <laughs> no wonder they sought to kill him. Um, and two metaphors unfold here. Um, we have this mouth as an open sewer. And we have this courtroom of God's justice. Um, he sets this up with his quotations of Scripture. He begins with, you know, none is righteous, no one understands, all have turned aside. This is Psalm 14, which I preached on last week. I'm not going to repeat what that says. Um, I'm not going to repeat here what we considered last week. Um, and he shows what his, his, his desire, his goal here is to show that everyone is under sin. I want to show you this from the Old Testament Scriptures so that the Jews understand their own Scriptures testify against them. And he shows from the Scriptures, but he also appeals to natural law. The evidence that he brings is the sinfulness of the tongue. He gives this um, metaphor of basically uh, an, an open sewer. Um, how the words of our mouth reflect the depravity of our hearts. You know, think of Isaiah when he entered the presence of the Lord. His first inclination, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He thought about his sinful tongue first and foremost. Um, James speaks of whoever can bridle the tongue is a perfect man. Um, so, so there's evidence from the scriptures, there's evidence from the human tongue, and he's setting up this courtroom scene where the law speaks so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world is accountable before God. This is a picture of a defendant standing at the bar, standing before the judge, you know, in in the midst of the trial, there is a defense given. There are excuses. There are explanations. Right? There is evidence brought before the court that, that alleged or tries to answer the objections leveled against the defendant. But when he's standing before the bar, when the scriptures have spoken, that mouth stops. Every mouth may be stopped. You got no more excuses. 
This is judgment now. No more explanations, no more excuses, no more mouth of an open sewer either. The law has shut your mouth. And the whole world is accountable before God. All are proven guilty. All are silent before the judge. There is nothing left to say. And the whole world is accountable to God. So, with this, I've got two minutes. A couple things in closing. First, I want you to notice, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who is under the law? All. The whole world. Um, Don't listen to those who say the Mosaic law, the Jewish law is only for Jews and now it's been abrogated and it doesn't matter anymore in the new covenant God's all grace and love and the Ten Commandments don't matter and nothing else Paul has already said look the law written on the heart and the law written on, in the Mosaic law the moral law is the same thing and you're all accountable to it second question what is the purpose of the law what Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It can't save. It doesn't have the power to save. It was never given for the purposes of saving. It can only expose the need to be saved. If you don't look at the law that way, you're not looking at it in accordance with the gospel, and you will be lost, is a sobering reality. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, to conclude everything, there are no excuses, no knowledge of the law and covenantal privileges matter, no heritage or religious association, no uh, ignorance of God's law, I didn't know, well it's written on your heart, no God is sovereign, there's nothing I can do, human sinfulness has been proven. The answer to the terrifying problem of the wrath of God being revealed is not found in the law or in us, although the law bears witness to it. There must be, verse 21, a righteousness of God manifested apart from the law. That's his point. And uh, I was going to conclude with some points of application but we've we've got to conclude right here unfortunately because our time is out but we think about just think about it maybe talk about it um, uh, in your homes in your families today Um, the religiosity um, privilege growing up in the church legalism antinomianism how those play out today human sinfulness and sovereignty the right use of the law all of these things are relevant and with that next week we will we will turn to verse 21 and 31 and we find the great answer to all these problems that stem back to Romans chapter 1. 
Um, if you have any questions or comments, find me afterwards, but I'm going to end now so that we can get the kids up here and get ready for worship.